Hello and welcome to this week's episode. We were really honored to be selected as Site of the Week by Podbean, and so if you are one of the many new subscribers who have joined us through that platform, I hope you do enjoy this episode and stick around for plenty more in the future. And for all our regular listeners, thank you again for all of your support over the last year. Today's episode centers around the troubles in Northern Ireland through the lens of one man's story. I was very lucky to sit down with the writer, Glenn Patterson, and we do a full introduction to Glenn and the film on the recording, so I'll get straight on to the episode. I'll just say first that there are lots of great anecdotes and stories in this one, as well as plenty of insights on writing from Glenn. So this really was a fantastic conversation. I enjoyed recording this episode a lot, and I'm really pleased to be sharing it with you. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to the 21st Rewrite. I'm William Coldwell, and I'm joined this week by a very special guest. Glenn Patterson is a novelist, screenwriter, and director of the Seamus Heaney Center at Queen's University, Belfast. And I'm in Belfast today to talk to him. Welcome to the Seamus Heaney Center. Thank you. Today we'll be talking about the film Good Vibrations, released in 2013, which Glenn co-wrote with Colin Carberry. So could you give us an introduction? This story centers on the life of Terry Hooley, who was a real person, or should I say, is still a real person. He founded the record shop Good Vibrations, from which the film takes its name. Good Vibrations was a, a record shop that I used to go into. It opened in the late 1970s in Belfast, in what was then the most bombed mile uh, in the city, at a time when Belfast was the most bombed city in Western, or indeed any part of Europe. The idea that anyone would open anything in Belfast in the late 1970s was slightly absurd. The idea that somebody would open a record shop, principally as Terry intended at the start, to sell reggae, he was a huge and still is a huge reggae fan, was even more absurd. To call that record shop Good Vibrations at that time was possibly the most absurd <laughs> thing. And Terry opened the shop and very soon after he opened the shop, he literally stumbled upon the nascent Belfast punk scene and in fairly short order became not only the owner of a record shop, but also the owner of a record label and produced some of really the key records that came out of Belfast and Northern Ireland at that time. So you were already familiar with the location and, and Terry himself when you started writing this? I'd known Terry for several decades before I started working on, on the script for Good Vibrations. The record shop was on Great Victoria Street in Belfast, so we're sitting talking here in the Seamus Heaney Centre at Queen's University, uh, about a, half a mile from the city centre. I went to school very close to here, a school called Methody, and I could have walked in my lunchtime from the school, wasn't supposed to, but you could have walked down into town to Good Vibrations or walked down after school, and many people did. It was up a staircase, fairly down at heel part of town and a fairly down at heel building. So I did know the shop. And often entered with a certain amount of trepidation because you had to go up this staircase and there were, you know, they were lined with record sleeves and um, there were notices about bands and things happening. It was, uh, it was certainly a destination that uh, I was aware of. And I got to know Terry, uh, not at that stage, but a bit later. A friend of mine, Andy White, had a record out in a Good Vibrations label um, in the 1980s. And I got to know Terry around that time. In the early 1990s, I was living in Manchester and was making a documentary for Granada TV about the connections between Belfast and Manchester. And as part of that, I um, did a little bit of filming in Good Vibrations. It had moved. One of the things about the Good Vibrations record shop and about Terry as a record shop owner is he is an, an appalling businessman, partly because of um, his generosity and his inability to hold on to money that he earned. He would gladly and frequently give it away to bands who needed a PA or who needed a van. Uh, so he wasn't a great businessman. Um, he went bankrupt several times and the shop moved on four or five occasions. In the early 1990s, uh, it was on a street called Hard Street in Belfast and I went in there to interview Terry or do a bit of filming in the shop. 
and afterwards went for a drink with him, the camera crew, round to uh, the Crown Bar, one of our best-known bars in Belfast. And Terry started telling me these stories that were just so outrageous that I thought... Now, I'm a novelist principally, so at that stage in the early 1990s, I published a couple of novels. And when Terry started telling me some of the, these stories, I thought, this is a screenplay. And I don't know why I thought that, because I hadn't had any experience of, of writing screenplays, but I just thought the only thing I could think, the only appropriate form for telling this story, if somebody was going to tell it, would be as film. A few years after that, getting on then into the later 1990s, I was back living in Belfast, had started working here at Queen's University. I'd been the writer in residence at Queen's University. And one of the people who I'd worked with was uh, a student called Colin Carberry, brilliant short story writer, still the work I saw of Collins when he was an undergraduate at the university ranks for me as the best I've ever seen from any undergraduate student or indeed postgraduate student. So Colin and I became friends and he and I were talking one night and he mentioned an interest he had in the music scene in the, of the late 1970s and his desire to do something around good vibrations. And I told him that I had had a similar thought a few years before and we decided more or less then and there that we would uh, have a go at this. So there are two unusual things about this. Neither of us had written a screenplay at this stage and uh, neither of us had ever co-written. And uh, such is the strength of beer in Lavery's bar that we just decided that um, we were going to do those things. We were going to write a screenplay and we were going to do it together. What did you think the commercial prospects were for the film at the time? We started out writing it thinking, I mean, I think we were quite modest in our ambitions all the way through. It was always, can we do this? Can we get a treatment that might interest somebody to mm -hmm. give us some money? And then when we got that, can we get a draft of a script that will interest a producer? And, and first of all, could we actually, the two of us, sit down together and write something? How did you do that? Did you sit, as you and I are sitting here, looking at each other across the space of a couple of feet at a desk? Just how did you go about co-writing? So we we were, as I say, fairly modest in our ambitions. And we at, at every stage, I think, we thought, sure, if it doesn't work, what's lost? We haven't, not, we haven't lost anything. Shortly after we started working or had decided we were going to work on it, we went to see Terry. I did know him. Colin hadn't met him at that stage. And we said that we were intending to write a screenplay based on his life. I think from the very beginning, we said based on his stories, because Terry is an extraordinary storyteller. So we, we said we wanted to do something, and he gave us his blessing. We spent a, a number of nights sitting around in my house talking to Terry, Brandy was nearly always involved. Terry would start to tell us stories and we would write as much as we could of what he was telling us. And then the drink took over and we all lost sense. And sometime in the middle of the night, I would get, because it was in the days still of fax, I would hear the fax machine in my hallway go and I'd come down and Terry would have remembered reams of things that he had forgotten to tell me. And so my floor, my hallway would be covered with um, this screed of story from, from Terry Hulick. So we, we amassed a lot of material and we got the interest of Film 4 were interested and a producer in Dublin was interested. And then Terry decided that he didn't really want to proceed with it. He was a little bit wary of getting involved with Dublin and London producers and broadcasters and we decided that if Terry wasn't happy, we weren't happy, and we just stopped it. That was about 1999. We'd been trying to develop it for a couple of years. We set it aside for nearly eight years. Wow. So did you have a full draft when you set it aside or just a treatment? Well, that's it, it's a very good question. What did we have when we, when we set it aside? I got a call from Colin and I remained uh, friends, and we saw each other fairly regularly. But we had almost stopped talking about good vibrations. And I got a call one day, I'm pretty sure it was 2007, early summer of 2007, got a call from Colin. And he'd had a very curious conversation. He reviews 
or had been a music writer for Hot Press magazine in Dublin. And he had a call from Gary Lightbody from Snow Patrol. And Johnny Quinn, who's in Snow Patrol, used to work at Good Vibrations. And possibly through Johnny, Gary Lightbody had heard that there was a script somewhere around, a script had been done about Good Vibrations, and he wanted to know if he could help get it made. Um, Colin phoned me and he said, what do we have? So we started looking around to see what we had actually done in the mid to late 90s on, uh, on Good Vibrations. The only thing we could find was I could find a floppy disk that had Good Vibrations written on it. But really, we only had a treatment. There was no script. I think we really only ever had a treatment at that stage. We may have written some script, but we, we didn't have a full draft. Or if we had one, we couldn't find it. So we were basically starting again. And at this time, you had been writing other things. and I hadn't written any more screenplay. I don't think Colin had. I, I'd been concentrating on, on my novels, my, my other work. But you were still evolving as a writer in that sense? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I started. So my first novel came out in 1988. And I had, by 2007, I'd probably finished about, I'd published eight, maybe, at that stage. So I was, yeah, I was writing all kinds of other things. I was doing documentary, TV documentaries I worked on quite a lot. I did radio stuff. Um, you know, I just, I wrote. And Colin, likewise, was writing principally short stories. You know, he had, had short stories broadcast on the BBC. Uh, so we were both doing other things. We'd always, you know, we'd always thought that we... We, we didn't want to carry on with Good Vibrations when Terry wasn't happy with um, the production team or the, um, the the suggestion of who the producers might be. Um, we didn't think it was worth carrying on. We didn't want to do it if he wasn't happy about it. However, we still thought it had been a really good idea and that somebody someday probably would do it. Once Gary Lightbody got in touch and suggested that um, he would like to help us get it made, Colin and I, we, we found this version of the treatment. And another friend of ours, Lisa Barristasa, had been doing some script development work. And Colin suggested sending the treatment to her just to make sure that it was up to scratch before we sent it on to Gary. Lisa and her partner, husband, Glenn Leyburn, uh, had a, a production company. I don't even know if I knew this at that stage, but uh, they had a production company with David Holmes, who I also knew, Canderblinks Productions. So we sent them the treatment, sent Lisa the treatment to have a look at it. And they got back to us and said, or Lisa got back and said that she thought the treatment worked well. And actually, Canderblinks might like to work with us on developing it. So in a fairly short period of time, probably just a couple of weeks, somewhere around the early summer of 2007, this thing that had been on hold for possibly eight years was suddenly very much alive. Yeah, we've, we find ourselves, I think, I think Colin phoned me, I think, I think maybe what he said was, are you ready for the madness again? I think that might have been the first line in, uh, when he phoned me up and asked me, did we want to do this? Because it is a mad world. Terry's world is a brilliantly mad world. Terry, by the time he opened the record shop in the late 1970s, was already something of a legend okay. uh, in, in Belfast. Uh, his involvement uh, in the music scene went back to the early 1960s. Uh, he had DJed in the, uh, in the Maritime Club, which was famous for being the home of them, or the, the residence of them, uh, Van Morrison's band, first band. And uh, so he had been DJing since he was a teenager. At one stage, he had a, a tribe, a hippie tribe, and he'd always been, you know, whatever there was to be for, Terry was generally against. He was a leading figure in the student movement, despite not being a student. Um, so wherever there was a protest going on, Terry was there, and wherever there was music going on, Terry was involved too. His position in Belfast, and especially in Belfast as it developed from the late 1960s on into that period that we refer to as the Troubles was very, very important to me because it suggested that there were other ways always of identifying yourself and there were other ways always of being political than uh, by espousing either of the, um, the competing nationalisms that we had here. 
I think that's conveyed really well in the screenplay in terms of uh, Terry's character putting forward those views of when people in Northern Ireland say community is what they actually mean, a side, and which side are you on? And he doesn't want to identify with either. He just wants to be a person. And I think it's established really well in that opening scene as well, just how quickly things seem to have changed. Something that we're probably not aware of so much on the British side of the story is perhaps how different things might have felt in the 60s compared to the 70s. Uh, Terry always talked about there being, I've forgotten the exact number of clubs there were around Belfast um, in the mid-1960s. I mean, he thought this was a very vibrant city. Really, the the part of this it is a it it is set in Belfast. Um, it is in in many ways very particular um, in its in its setting, and yet, as all things must be, it has to speak to a wider audience. And and one of the things I think you can never overlook is just how quickly things can change. They can change with horrifying speed. The period from the late 1960s, from around about 1968 to, let's say, 1971, things deteriorated so fast here. People were caught up and people made decisions that maybe they would not have done at other times and probably was better for everyone that they had never made. Um, So people that Terry knew were pulled into or opted to join paramilitary organizations or became victims of paramilitary organizations. The extreme polarization, the hollowing out of the city. Belfast, instead of being a place that you went to, the way you would think of most cities, you know, gravitate towards the center. The center was the one place you didn't go. At night, there would be security gates. Um, there would be locked and could probably lock them about nine o'clock. I remember clambering over them a number of times. Lots of the bars that were in that inner city ring closed. There was no business. What bars there were were often the targets of attacks, bomb attacks, gun attacks. It became a very, very dangerous place to be. And people retreated to their area. You even used those words, you know, our area. The city changed so completely in a very, very short period of time. And Terry's view, and he wasn't alone in holding this, of course, but he was supremely articulate in it, was that you know, you choose who you are. You choose your community. You don't have it thrust on you. It's not a thing that is given to you when you're born. It can't be discerned by your name or your appearance or anything. You choose who you are and always must. And you absolutely, you choose all of those um, life-affirming, and those things that open up possibilities and, you know, you, you do not align yourself with uh, anything that denies possibility and finally life. And all of that through music. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's the thing. Two things about Terry that are important, I think, to say that happened in his childhood. When he was, when he was very young, he lost an eye. And also when he was very young, he got his first record. And the first record he got was English Country Garden. And he loved it so much he kept it with him for days before he found a record player to play it on. So he loved the object. He okay. fell in he love with it. Yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. And, and I, so I think that's important. He loved music, but he also loved records. So from a very, very early age, and when he lost his eye, there are several versions of this, but he told us that he remembered in the uh, in the ambulance on his way to the hospital, having had this accident and lost his eye, that he was hearing I Saw the Light by Hank Williams. So that altered state, that different way of looking at things, I think is very, very important in understanding Terry. And that was something that was always in our mind when we came to write the screenplay. So you actually did start the screenplay by focusing on that story in particular, because we see Terry as a child right at the beginning, playing that record, then losing his eye. The film version is cut a little bit differently than the way it goes in the screenplay, but the screenplay emphasizes a bit more that sense of he's going to see things a bit differently. He's going to see things a bit differently. And we thought that was an important note to strike uh, very, very early on in the film. Yeah, that, that, that ability to adopt another or to, to find another angle, another way of looking, which becomes more important at a later stage when, when things deteriorate very badly. 
we did have a scene that was not finally shot. He encounters a, a barman when he's DJing in the in the 1960s in one version of the script, uh, a barman called Jerry, who may bear some similarity to uh, a man who later became prominent in the Republican movement uh, in Adams, Belfast. And, indeed, that would be the, the person who was a barman in Belfast city centre at, at that stage in the 1960s. And they have a bit of a conversation about what the revolution might look like together. And then we go forward um, a few years to somebody else's idea of revolution, not Terry's with a car bomb going off, and Terry watching it on TV with his mum and his dad. And as he says, what a fucking nightmare. Mm -hmm. I think ultimately it, it probably plays to the best to have your main famous real person be John Peel instead of Jerry Adams. <laughs> <laughs> Someone people can rally around a, a bit more, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, we, we, we're very glad that people yeah, did and could rally around around John Peel. John Peel was an early champion of the records that Terry put out, most particularly Teenage Kicks, which was his favourite record of, of all time. And of course, the line from it is famously on his headstone. One thing I'd like to ask you about then is having known Terry so well and listening to so many of his stories, perhaps some that may have changed over time and different facts are remembered or told in a different way. How did you go about walking that line between too sympathetic of a portrayal because you know him personally and also trying to show some of the darker side, the, the downfall that we see towards the end of the film? We were always clear from the beginning that we were writing it about Terry and we weren't writing it for him. And we did say that. I'd had some experience. I had written a memoir. I started to write a novel based on my grandparents' lives in the 1920s. And uh, they were called Jack and Kate. And I made the mistake. I like the names, Jack and Kate. They're good names for characters. I made the mistake the first time I attempted to write anything of using their names. And then I couldn't get them out of my head. And not intending to, I ended up writing a memoir. And I met up with my dad, my uncles, all surviving relatives and told them what I was doing and said I I was going to be writing about my, my grandparents, their parents. But again, it wasn't written for the family, it was written about. Now it's, a, it's an easy thing for a writer to say that. It's a harder thing maybe sometimes for people whose lives and whose experience might be um, represented to accept that. But Terry understood that we weren't going to be coming to him with every single draft, asking him to approve every single thing that was in it. Which of Terry's stories did you wish you could have included but couldn't? A, a typical Terry story, and they don't always reflect terribly well on him. Bob Dylan came to Belfast in the mid-1960s. There were very few people who were uh, admitted to see him, to do interviews with him. Terry was one, I think, of only two people who was granted an interview for some publication he had at the time. Terry got to ask Bob Dylan, he went to the hotel, he went into the room, and he got to ask one question, which was, Bob, why, when Joan Baez is refusing to pay her taxes as a protest against the Vietnam War, are you still paying yours? And Bob said, fuck off, Terry. And Terry came back out of the hotel room. He walked outside and everyone cheered. And he waved. That's, that's a typical Terry story. So we, we wanted to have the Bob Dylan. We could never get the Bob <laughs> Dylan story in. Another of Terry's stories, which was in the script, I think until right until the, the very end, probably I think it's probably in the shooting script. I'm, I'm looking here. I've got a copy of the shooting script dated 12th of August 2011. And I think it's probably in there. Terry, for a while, was the self-appointed Belfast correspondent of Oz magazine, very famous counterculture magazine in London in the late 1960s. Terry was their Belfast correspondent by dint of just telling them that he was. So Terry's story, and this is one of the first ones I heard sitting with them in the Crown Bar when I was working on this documentary for Granada TV, was that he was, in 1969, just after the outbreak of violence here in Belfast, he was in the offices of Oz and John Lennon walked in. And in all okay, of Terry's yeah, stories... You, you refer to the John Lennon story the John Lennon repeatedly, story, throughout repeatedly throughout the yeah. So in, yeah. in all of Terry's stories, whether it's Bob Dylan, Bob Marley, John Lennon, anybody who meets Terry, they say Terry. So it's always first name terms. 
So John Lennon comes into the offices of Oz. He sees Terry, says, Terry, what's going on in Belfast? It's awful. What can I do to help the people of Belfast? And he offers guns. And Terry says, it's not fucking guns the people of Belfast need. It's drugs. Sometimes he tells this story, there is a headbutt. Sometimes there's a punch thrown in one direction or the other. Anyway, he impresses on John Lennon that the people of Northern Ireland, people of Belfast need drugs. And John Lennon gives him a suitcase full of dope that he brings back to Belfast to distribute to the people of Belfast. So that's the story. We were we were working with um, a broadcaster who uh, was going to put some money into the film and they came to Belfast and on their way from Belfast City Airport to the place where we were going to have the meeting, they got talking to a taxi driver who asked them what they were doing in Belfast. And they said, uh, we're working on this thing called Good Vibrations by Terry Hooley. And the taxi driver said, have you ever heard his John Lennon story? Mm-hmm. That is how often that story has been told. It's told in many ways, and one of the things we attempted to do was every time we referred to it in the script, it would be a different John Lennon. It would be John Lennon with the long hair and beard, it would be John Lennon with the instant karma crew cut. So we that was one of our ways of dealing with this, was that maybe the stories varied a little bit and they weren't always reliable. And finally, we, we came to do the film and we couldn't make it work. So... The John Lennon story, I think, probably exists in the finished film by one ghost swing of Terry's fist as he stands talking to the person playing Susie Sue of Susie and the Banshees in the Ulster Hall. You'll be sorry you ask me any questions because what, what appears to me to be happening is you ask a short question and then it's a very long answer. No, that's absolutely fine. It's good to get as detailed an answer as I can. Uh, one thing I would like to ask about then tagging onto that is about this semi-surrealism that you have mm. running through the screenplay. Is that something you like as a writing style? Is it a technique specifically to address the ebb and flow of truth coming from Terry Hooley? How, why did you choose to make it so surreal when it's based on fact? I certainly don't think we would have started out with an idea of making it deliberately surreal and it wouldn't be a, a mode of writing that would come naturally to Colin or to me. Well, there are a lot of things about altered perception and consciousness in this film. Terry is an enthusiastic drug taker and certainly um, had a huge appetite for mind-altering substances through most of the period that we're talking about. And uh, so there's that. We're also living in a place of, I'm going to say, heightened reality. I mean, Extraordinary things are happening. There are altered states all around. And some of those are states where you self-administer and alter it. And then there are things like his uh, the loss of his eye. But then there are also things that are happening where the state of, of reality is being altered around you. I'll give you one example. Absolutely nothing at all to do with this film. My mum tells me, my mum's in her 80s now, and she tells a story of being in a bomb scare in Belfast and standing behind a cordon looking towards where the car bomb, the suspect car was. And she describes seeing glass coming out almost like an extended tear from the front of a shop and coming down the street and thinking, isn't that extraordinary? Isn't that beautiful? Why is it doing that? And then a split second later, the sound of the explosion overtook and that was the bomb going off. But the first thing she saw was this extraordinary glass effect. And then everything, you know, there's the boom and everything kicks in, all the panic. So I think there's something of that. This was all happening at a moment when things could change very, very rapidly and unpleasantly, nightmarishly. Mm -hmm. uh, as well. So I think there was always something for us in this about trying to convey something of those various altered states at that particular time and with that particular character. Yeah, it's interesting with that story that I've, I've spoken to people who have been in car crashes and they've explained a similar sensation of sensing reality slowing down. Just those split seconds in which the crash actually happened yeah. that it seemed to last for an eternity. Mm -hmm. It's interesting that that seems to be linked to that perception of danger that in some way 
perhaps it does affect our conscious experience. Very everyday things like uh, a young band wanting to go on tour, wanting to get into a minibus. It's, a, it's almost a cliche of musical development and possibly even of musical films. You get in the band bus and you go on tour. You get in a band bus here in those years and you went on tour and um, you could, as indeed uh, happens in the film, encounter um, soldiers with camouflage uh, uniforms on with their faces black and pulling you out uh, in torrential rain you know, spread eagling you against the van and searching and asking you where you're all from. So, and, and of course, worse things happened. There was um, uh, the dreadful, dreadful, dreadful Miami show band massacre uh, in 1975. That's added into the film yeah. in one of the narrations, That's which right. is added yeah. on top. Yeah. And isn't in the version of the script in the BBC Writers Room, which yeah. maybe we'll talk about that in a yeah. bit. It was a dangerous, dangerous time for people to be out at night and uh, it was no protection being a member of uh, a show band. Show bands were, were very big here in North and South uh, and they travelled uh, backwards and forwards across the border. Three members of the band were murdered by um, the UVF. They were in the guise of part-time soldiers and they, they left a bomb on the bus which exploded killing two of the members of the, the UVF gang and uh, those who survived shot the, the band. These were very real dangers and you could encounter them anywhere. And of course, it's it's no different in some ways to um, what people would experience in other cities. And um, uh, you know, to, down to today, it's, it's never particularly safe being a young person out and about at night. But this was a very particular set of circumstances that Terry, who wanted to, um, having discovered punk and become this record label owner, and um, and lo he loved these bands. He was only about thirty by the time he opened the shop and started putting out the records. But these these were teenagers, and he wanted to spread the love. He wanted to get the get the music out there. So, as you're not a screenwriter, I'm not sure to what extent you kind of educated yourself in in learning about screenwriting, or if you just approached it with the the novelist sensibilities. But are you familiar with the Save the Cat theme, <laughs> uh, the Blake Snyder <laughs> classic introduction to screenwriting? Um, yeah, yeah, no, I'm not. I'm not a trained screenwriter so save the cat is this book that yes no, it's very famous but obviously many screenwriters yeah. kind of look down on it nowadays yeah. because it's a commercial bestseller that you know it, it's it's most people's introduction if they were to go into a shop and find it but i'm just wondering how you set up this idea of making the character likable from the beginning because he's going to have a downfall towards the end how did you focus on making him Likeable. I can think of two, two <laughs> things you did early well, on, which we okay. can talk about. Well, but, sure. I mean, yeah. you can you can tell me those things where we where we managed to, to do it. I mean, I, I, if I don't answer it satisfactorily, and uh, saying what we thought. I mean, one of what we felt about Terry was now you got to remember we started writing this or working on this just after the beginning of our peace process in the mid nineteen nineties. So it's. I keep saying it was 1997. I think it was around about that time. So it's just before the Good Friday Agreement that we started to think about this. And Terry was badly beaten up. We show it in the film, but we kind of cheat the chronology slightly. He was bad, badly beaten up in the 1990s by members of uh, a notorious loyalist paramilitary group. And... He'd been beaten up a number of times. Somebody tried to kill him in the early 1970s, which is kind of one of the reasons why he decided he was going to end up opening a record shop. Um, if he was going to die, he'd die doing something he loved rather than working in Kodak, developing film. But the fact that he was beaten up again in the 1990s, I thought there was just something enduring about Terry, that he had come through this entire period uh, with a certain amount of integrity, that he had not wavered in his non-sectarian views and that he was still, even into the peacetime, he was still a target for people. I thought he was a, I thought he was a hero. Mm -hmm. I didn't think as a human being, maybe sometimes as a parent, possibly as a partner, he was always heroic in what he did. But I thought overall he was a hero fallible but a hero and i think probably we just set out to think if we could tell a story of a, a man 
who managed to come through something like that. Two decades of extraordinary upheaval and polarization and still come through that with some kind of integrity, then we had a pretty good story. So the first one I was going to mention is that he doesn't take sides. I think that establishes very well for us as an audience why to like him. The second I also think is really brilliant is when they're at a punk gig at one of the bars and he stops the RUC officer from IDing a girl who is probably there drinking underage and eventually the whole crowd turns on them and they they're kind of forced out of the out of the gig that kind of putting himself on the line for someone else when there's nothing to gain by it but just kind of standing up for something which he thinks is justice because he is saying why are you targeting some kid who's not doing anything wrong when there's he says, excuse me, officer, I'd like to report a civil war outside. It's a brilliant line. I can say that, the, um, excuse me, officer, I'd like to report a civil war outside is a brilliant line because that's, I know that that emanated from Colin. So there, there, there are lines in the script that you, you, know, you, know their, you know their provenance. We often sat together and wrote, and sometimes we wrote uh, on our own and you know batted things backwards and forwards, phone calls, text messages, emails. But yeah, that's uh, that's very definitely that was. Um, I remember Colin saying that line and just thinking that's absolutely brilliant. That scene, that's uh, it's it took place in a in a place called the Pound, a venue in Belfast at that stage. And um, Terry went to it just kind of out of curiosity and found two bands playing. One called the Outcasts, and the other one called Rudy. And he put out a record by Rudy. Big Time was the first song that he heard, and we we show that in the film. The experience of hearing Big Time and just how transported he is by that. And the scene in the film is um, is probably a, a very satisfactory uh, or uh, emblematic mix of fact and fictionalizing. So uh, the police did come in to this gig while Terry was there and the crowd did turn and start chanting S-S-R-U-C, S-S-R-U-C. And we have that in the film. And Terry caught up in it. The the line, excuse me, officer, I'd like to report a civil war outside. As I say, that's uh, straight from Colin Carberry. So the event, very, very important gig and very important in, in uh, Terry's development and in the development of the music scene here and the counterculture, if you want to call it that, in Belfast at that time. All of that happened. And yet the most memorable line in that, apart from the SSRUC, which is pretty good, um, and that was the... Uh, Chanted by the by the by the people in the crowd, uh, is uh, yeah is 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 brought to it by by Colin. So with screenwriting as well, we usually focus on how do you tell a story visually. Ultimately, you're writing the story sure. to to give an outline of the order in which events need to happen, the dialogue, the important bits of action, but also the visual. But with this film, you also have another factor, which is the music. So. I'd just like some of your thoughts on how to write in music, the extent to which you let the music do the talking for you at at certain stages. I've got a couple of versions of the script here in the table, and one of them, which is our third draft, dated the 30th of April 2010, has in pink pen, I'm embarrassed to say that one stage I bought Colin and me different colored pens. If we were passing scripts backwards and forwards, we could tell her whose, whose <laughs> note was which. Should have known it from the handwriting. Anyway, it's a pink pen, which is uh, the one I was using. And I have on it a list of the songs that we have used in the script. Just running down this with my eye. I think there's maybe 30 there in the script. And some of these, when we were writing, especially when we were writing, if we were around in my house, we were just putting records on and we'd be listening to records while we wrote a scene or talked about a scene. So they really did inform the scene and the the development. So there's a song we never used. It's not in the finished film called Street Life by Roxy Music. But, you know, we were thinking about Terry. Terry's a guy who walks. Don't think he drives. He walks everywhere. Um, and uh, we, we kind of wanted to get that sense of him on the street all the time, his big overcoat pound in the street, you know, always walking, walking, walking. So Street Life, 
as I say, never made it into the film, but it was a song that we were listening to and thinking about when we were writing the early scenes about Belfast. There are songs that we just had to have in, so Big Time, um, You're a Disease by the Outcasts, Teenage Kicks, obviously, so you know all the local bands. But there's another one here called This Perfect Day, a punk song um, from Australia, and uh, we had that in because we just, you know, even just saying the title, This Perfect Day, it's by the Saints, it kind of tells a, a, something of a story as well. So we had that running uh, when things are going well for Terry. He's opening up a, a club night. So you can tell sometimes they are carrying the story. Other times they are just informing the mood. And sometimes they're only just a little bit of grounding for me and for Colin to kind of think our way into that place mm-hmm. and time. Yeah, it's it's interesting because a lot of the time screenwriters are advised not to include specific mm. songs mm-hmm. because obviously then there's rights issues and you can never be sure if you'll be able to use a certain song or, or not. However, with a film about a record label, you're going to need to include certain key songs. Otherwise, it's not really about that music scene itself. So obviously having uh, Teenage Kicks is essential to to the entire story. It is, and, and yes, the rights question was raised fairly early on, and I don't think anybody told us not to write things into scenes or not to get too wedded to certain things. And of the 30-odd songs that are on this um, cover sheet here, I think probably maybe 10 of them you will hear in the film, partly because of uh, further drafts, partly maybe because of rights things later on. But you just couldn't make a film about music in Belfast at that time without including the music from Belfast at that time. There are two interesting ones. You mentioned Teenage Kicks. The Undertones from Derry, so not a Belfast band, and they, they shortly after they released Teenage Kicks on Terry's Good Vibrations label were picked up by Sire Records. And there's a famous story about how Terry more or less gave away his rights to Teenage Kicks, which we tell him in the film. But we weren't certain that uh, the undertones, because um, their relationship with Terry, I think it's fair to say, hadn't always been great after they went to Sire, even though they went with his blessing. We weren't sure that the, the undertones were necessarily going to be happy with us using all the music. And so in the film, the first time Terry hears Teenage Kicks, we knew that had to be a really significant moment because we knew for the audience it would probably be of all the records that they were hearing, the local records, probably be the one that they knew. And we knew it had to be really, really important. John Peel, when he played it on the radio, again, famously loved Teenage Kicks so much, he said, I'm going to do a thing I haven't done for a while. And he played it again. So he played it twice back to back. So it was kind of fairly unprecedented. So we were always going to hear Teenage Kicks more than once, but the first time of hearing it, we knew had real impact. And Colin McKeown, who was script advisor, uh, who we worked with, suggested that maybe the first time Terry heard it, we didn't hear it. So what you have in the film is Terry being handed a pair of headphones and he puts them on and he's hearing Teenage Kicks and the audience can't hear it. They can just see his face undergo this extraordinary transformation, beatific expression on his face, brilliantly, brilliantly done by Richard Dormer, who's playing Terry, beautifully directed by Glenn and Lisa. Now, some people told me afterwards that they thought when Terry puts on the headphones and listens to Teenage Kicks that we hadn't got the rights for Teenage Kicks. They thought that's why we were doing it this way. We were doing it because we wanted to save the moment when everyone else heard it for when John Peel played it on the radio and played it twice. It was a scene that we had imagined and that I think probably shows the great thing about film, how it is such a, a team effort. Um, you have a script advisor, you have the writers, you have the directors, you have the actor, you have the music. Brilliantly, I think it's one of, the, one of my favorite bits in the film is that moment when Terry is first hearing teenage kicks yeah it's it's really really effective and then the payoff to that moment is of course when it does come on the radio you have this moment of elation where terry runs down from the bathroom (laughs) 
basically almost with his trousers around his legs to, <laughs> yeah. and then is dancing around the living room with with, 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 with Ruth. Ruth. Yeah, so yeah. it works so well and that's when we as an audience get to hear it. That's and right. of course it's so recognizable yeah. but it's such a moment of elation for everyone that it, it's kind of the high point right at the middle of the film. That, and, and the other thing, of course, with that is that Terry, between hearing it in the studio and realizing he has something extraordinary on his hands, goes to London and tries to uh, get it onto a major label and isn't successful, feels like he has really fucked up. Yeah, he's, he's told by the record company bosses, executives that he talks to that it's a... Uh, it's shit basically and um and you know so he he gets evicted from or ejected from uh, a couple of record labels as he starts to take issue with this and uh, and he finds himself in the street and um and he he goes around to jump he thinks who in the city knows genius when it's handed to them he has a, a moment of inspiration and uh, he goes to the bbc and hands over the record and that's it he goes back to belfast not even knowing whether peel has got the record he just because he couldn't yeah. get through security at the I couldn't get past the front desk at the BBC. He gets back home, and you still don't know. Um, and then he he has gone off up to the bathroom. Ruth is still listening to the radio, so he actually misses it the first time around. We only hear it when John Peel plays it the second time. There's an additional bit of humour there in the script where he's trying to hand over the record at the BBC and he mentions he's come all the way from Belfast <laughs> yes. and the, obviously yes. the receptionist <laughs> yes, is yeah. terrified by yeah, the fact someone's yeah, that he's brought got a, a package, package. <laughs> from yeah he he realizes that in in some ways what he has is even more potent than what she fears it might be you know this mm -hmm. this really is um this is this is something extraordinary yeah so he he ends up on his knees kind of weeping um, as he tries to hand over the record and, and then meets somebody who um, is a BBC correspondent who has been in his shop and has, has uh, bought a, a very rare record off him who recognises him and takes the record and gives it up to um, takes it up to John Peel. Another song we were very, very keen to include from the very beginning was a song called Laugh At Me. And Laugh At Me was a song by Sonny Bono, Sonny and Cher fame. And as Sonny used to say when he and Cher were doing gigs together, I'm now going to do a medley of my hit and then would sing Laugh At Me. Terry had actually um, released a copy of Laugh At Me on his own label in the late 1970s. It actually got the number one in the alternative charts, a story Terry had tried to tell us on numerous occasions. And as often happened when Terry was telling you a story, this story would meet another story coming in, in the opposite direction and go off with it. So um, he would often tell us the story of how Laugh At Me, his version of Laugh At Me, got the number one, I think maybe it was Christmas 1980, I'm going to say, and uh, it either knocked Paul Weller off top spot or it kept him off top spot. So he would tell the story and he would run into the moment where Paul Weller was invoked and then he would tell you about how Paul Weller you know, used to kind of have a bit of banter with him about um, Laugh At Me keeping him off the number one spot. Not until the first screening of the film, when I was actually standing at the urinals in the Queen's Film Theatre here at the university with Terry, and he started telling me again the story of Laugh At Me being at number one. Did he break through the, uh, the Paul Weller story and tell me that actually he had got, I think he got £3,000 for... Uh, that record being at number one and it arrived just before Christmas and he and his friend tried to decide what to do with the £3,000 and they went and gave it to, I think it was Bernardo's. So this was the story he had always started to tell and he never got to that bit, the bit that reflects really well on him that he just got this money and gave it away because he always met a celebrity, Paul Weller, and he wanted to tell you what Paul Weller thought about Laugh At Me. And at that moment, I was thinking, because we'd made this film, uh, as you've alluded to, there's there's always this uh, thing when you're making the film, is it is it a bit of a hagiography? Are you, are you maybe making this person out to be uh, a better human being than um, you might have done? And I thought, when he told me this story, I thought, you absolutely are a hero and you absolutely do not tell anything to reflect well on yourself. I mean, this is this is not for the greater glory of Terry Hooley. It's for what what's a great story. We always wanted to have Laugh At Me because it was his signature tune. And we got an extraordinary night in the Ulster Hall 
uh, in Belfast city centre where Richard Dormer sings Laugh At Me. Richard, who I don't think had ever sung uh, on screen or before a, a live audience. We had a full house in the Ulster Hall. Uh, Gary Lightbody came along that night and played and um, a couple of the other members of Snow Patrol um, who had supported the film played. So there was, you know, the audience all got a night, but they also got to be in the film. And yeah, Richard Dormer singing Laugh At Me. Even thinking about it, I still, um, you know, tingles. So the one, one thing I was going to say just before as well about Terry's persistence in trying to get that record to anyone in London, I think that also can be good advice for writers as well. Just the sense that just because it's being rejected a lot of the time doesn't mean no one's going to like it. You might just have to find your audience. And he was doing the same thing with music. That is very true about um, Terry's persistence. And, and it's a point well made about writing. We, we learned a lot, I think, Colin and I, about writing scripts. Something one of the early readers of it, um, Stephen Wright, um, who at that stage uh, was with um, was acting head of BBC Films here in Belfast, or BBC Drama here in Belfast. Um, Stephen said he enjoyed reading the script, and he said, in his experience, if you enjoyed reading it, you would enjoy seeing it. He also said that there were many good films that didn't get made. They didn't get made because everything just didn't come together in the way that it needed to. So we we knew precious little about film production. The other producer we worked with, uh, David Holmes was one of the producers, but Chris Martin also got involved. And uh, Chris, you know, explained to, again, guy from Belfast, one of the great things about this film was that so many of us were from Belfast and living in Belfast while we were making it, a thing that couldn't have happened 10 years before. But Chris explained to us how the money worked, how he had to put everything in place. It was fine to say that we had a, a promise of half a million pounds from here or 2.5 million pounds from there, unless they'd all arrived at the same point on the same day, then it, it didn't exist. We ended up having to make this film on a budget of, I think it's £1.67 million, which sounds like a huge heap of money, but it's not the budget that we originally thought we might be making it for. It's a film that has a lot of music in it. It's a film that has a period setting. So it would be a film that might be considered quite expensive to make, and we had to do it on a, on a, on a much reduced budget. Yeah, one thing I noticed is Terry takes his eye out a lot in the script, and actually that doesn't really come across on screen as much as it, it does in the screenplay. I can imagine that perhaps that's because of a budgetary reason. Terry taking his eye out is... Um, yeah. Terry says he never did. Um, I've seen him do it. <laughs> he often took it out and held it up. Um, he says he never put it in anybody's drink, but I've talked to enough people who've told me that he did. Yeah, what we, what we did in the film was there, there was a, a lens that uh, Richard wears throughout mm -hmm. that gives you the impression uh, of the false eye. But so I'm not sure if it was quite budget. I think there's maybe a moment where he's um, where you see him reach into a glass after the the pound, and he, he reaches in and he takes something out and he screws it in. So I think that's him putting the eye back in. You just don't see mm -hmm. it necessarily floating in the glass. But again, going on on the persistence, um, I think that another thing that Chris Martin said to us. I, see, I'm a novelist. And, and I've always worked with editors, but I, generally you work with one editor or, or maybe you have an agent who you trust. You usually have one person to whom you go for a thoughtful, considered reading and you will respond to what they tell you. In film, you have so many people who have an opinion and who buy the right to have an opinion because they're putting money into this. It took, it took from 2007 through to, when did we shoot this? 2011, so it was about four years of the development period once it was revived again. There are always these endless questions about what's the film about? Are you telling the story in the right way? Do we need to shift emphasis? Do we need to highlight something else? At a certain point, Chris Martin said to me, eventually you don't make a better film, you just make a different film. So again, that's something that I took away from me, that idea that it's worth writing something well, making the most enjoyable piece of writing you can for the reader, for the first reader to experience, that if something reads well, it may well shoot well and screen well, that uh, good films sometimes don't get 
made for no fault of the scripts and that beyond a certain point um, you just make a different film not a better film I think that essentially shows you that you're reaching your final draft is when you're just looking at alternatives as opposed to clear improvements which are always going to be needed early on later on when you're thinking I could put this in or that Mm -hmm. but ultimately they're both good yeah then you know you're onto something you know you're you're getting there I was, uh, I learned a lot, I said, writing the screenplay, and I learned a lot from working with Colin Carberry. And Colin had this attitude, which was not always mine, when we'd maybe get notes, and we'd look at the notes, and you know, there would be copious swearing, and uh, Colin would say, well, okay, we'll do it. We'll have a go. And if it's better, it's better, and if it's not any better, then well, we've got the good version here already. So I mean that that was that was really um, you know he's he's a he's an, an extremely good writer. I, I was um, as I say I probably was less inclined at times to take um, some of the suggestions and um, you know I, I think that you have to do it that way. You have to say all right, we'll we'll try it, we'll see what we get, but always have faith in the version that you have. If you're happy with it yourself, if you think that that's the best version of it that you can do and the right one for the draft that you've got, if somebody suggests something else, you can either fight it or you can have a go at it. And uh, if you don't like it as much, if it doesn't work as well, then you know you were right. So I suppose the last thing I'd like to ask you about is the ending, because Terry's encountering problems in terms of becoming a father, committing to Ruth and You've got that motif that you've introduced from the beginning of where she's going to be the most important thing to him. That should be downgraded to being the second most important thing because he's going to have a child. But he instead is focused on his record business. He's focused on, obviously there's difficulties financially and and all of this, but the key theme tends to be about reclaiming Belfast Mm -hmm. at the end and not so much about his personal life. So how did you find writing an ending that maybe wasn't a personal triumph, the ability to overcome personal issues, but became something else as, as an alternative? The truth about the end is that, that uh, as most of the rest of it did, went through several versions. Um, we did have the whole thing at one stage topped and tailed with Terry getting beaten up in the 1990s. When he got beaten up in the 1990s, he checked himself out of hospital and rang a taxi to pick him up from the hospital. And and actually what happened was a fleet of taxis came because word went around that Terry Hooley was in hospital and needed a cab. And a whole lot of people who remembered him from back in the, uh, the punk days came to pick him up. We thought that was a beautiful end. And it is a beautiful end, but it's not the one that we needed for the film. So we decided to end it um, on his first bankruptcy. Uh, Terry was going bankrupt in April 1980 and he decided to have a a gig, fundraising gig, in uh, brilliant Terry fashion. He had a fundraising gig and then let half of the the audience in for nothing and so possibly made a loss, but he certainly didn't make enough money to, to save his business. But by that stage, things were already polarizing again. So there's, you've got to imagine that this period that the film covers is a period from the late 1970s to the early 1980s when a generation of young people who'd grown into the troubles decided that well, they, were, they were going to try and uh, break through some of those barriers that had grown up with the troubles. They're coming into the city centre. Terry's very much a part of this. And then around about the um, early 1980s, there's another period associated with hunger strikes in uh, the Mays prison where there's that kind of polarising effect of the troubles again. So in the the film, in the script, uh, one of the kids in the Harp Bar, one of the punk venues, has a gun with them. And Terry says, what do you got that gun for? If you're scared about walking home, I'll get you a taxi. Just never come out. He says, kid says, it's a replica. It's not real. And Terry says, I'll get you you home just to make sure you're safe if you're worried about going home. And he said, no, it's not for going home. It's for in here. So the polarization kind of comes back. The moment is passing of that feeling of togetherness. And what Terry does in the Ulster Hall as he decides it's not about saving his business, it's not about him, it's about bringing back people into the city, taking on our biggest venue, the Ulster Hall, filling it full of young people, 
we took back Belfast tonight is what he says, which is um, a kind of a triumph. It's really great because the only other project I really know about that has attempted anything like this has come later, which would be Derry Girls, the same kind of thing of The Troubles is simply a backdrop. And previously, most of the films we've seen set in Northern Ireland have all been about conflict, about people who have been in the IRA or on the loyalist side, putting those two groups together and, and exploring the conflict. Obviously, there's some really great films like Hunger, Bloody Sunday, but still an alternative to that seemed to be coming. It seemed to be necessary. Some Again, this tying into that theme of reclaiming mm -hmm. Belfast, reclaiming Northern Ireland as a place where people lived as opposed to just a place of uh, terrorism. I mean, I, I would possibly disagree on it just being backdrop because it's not backdrop, it's backdrop and it's all it's all around. It's three-dimensional, mm -hmm. um, the, the troubles. And yet, as I always said, and I think about this with my, with my fiction, I grew up through this time. No matter what's going on out there in the world, this is your year to be 17. You have to do the things that you're going to do when you're 17 and you're going to have to do them in Belfast. So it doesn't matter if there are roadblocks. It doesn't matter if there are bomb scares. It doesn't matter if there are shootings at night. This is your time, and this is you're going to do it now. And I think it's it's that kind of elemental life force, that choosing who you will be, and that defiance, absolute defiance. It's not apolitical. It is supremely political. It just refuses all the terms that other people would try to pin on you. And I think that's um, that's that's for me what what good vibrations really is one of the great messages of it. Early on in the film, there's a a moment where Terry's trying to put on a gig in town, early 1970s. Some of the people who he used to know in the peace movement, anti-Vietnam War movement, are now aligned with paramilitary organisations. One of them looks at the poster and says, um, putting a gig on down there, have you a death wish? And he says, no, I have a life wish. It's a celebration of that. That's one of my favorite lines as well. And it appears on one of the first pages of the screenplay and it wonderfully sets the tone for what's to come in the story. Okay, uh, final question now. As a writer, having a community and helpful feedback is really key. But who do you reach out to for feedback in your work when you don't live in a major urban centre such as London, New York or Los Angeles? It's been very difficult at times to be a writer here in Belfast. And Good Vibrations was the first feature film, as I understand, that was written by, directed by, principally produced by, filmed in by people from Belfast. And the lead actor was was from here as well. It has become possible to write here, to get things made here, but it wasn't always like that. A lot of people have left at times, and I, I lived in England for a couple of years in the 1980s because it didn't seem possible to do things here. I think now that um, you know somebody like David Holmes. I mean, David Holmes is um, such a significant figure um, in film. He could he could live. He has for a time lived in Hollywood, but he chooses to be here, working as a record producer, working as a film producer, as a film score composer. I think that for me is is kind of the really the best thing that's happened here in the last lot of years. I worked in the Seamus Heaney Centre. One of my colleagues is Ashley Clark, um, writer and director. You know, we, we have people who, who now are based here who can make a career from here. And I think that's uh, that's a, that's been a great change. It's still sometimes frustrating to have projects and, and you feel like you have to have special pleading to get it made because of where it's set. But I'd say probably nowadays I'm finding that more with fiction than, uh, than I am with film. But that might say something more about what it's like being a 58-year-old uh, novelist. 15 novels into his um, colder career um, than it does about it anything is. else. <laughs> so, yeah, not another one of your books that's set in Belfast. No. But you do have a writer's community via the university, would you say? I have a, several writers' communities, and I mean, my, my co writer, Colin Carberry, is, um, is certainly the first person I would talk to about anything script related. The Seamus Heaney Centre here, where I'm talking to you, is a centre of creative writing. 
uh, obviously Seamus Heaney's name uh, attached to it. It's um, it's well known for its poetry, but um, there are a very good group of colleagues that I have um, teaching here, teaching creative writing in all its forms, fiction, script writing, uh, as well as poetry. Um, and then there's also a, a very good generation of, of younger writers who I'm in, in contact with as well, you know, um, and again, working across all those forms. You make your community. And with the internet, presumably, it might be easier for people to, to get into contact with each other and find some... I have Some to say, yes, I'm, I'm sure. Sentence. Yes, I'm, I'm, I'm sure. I'm, I'm, I'm not. Um, I'm, I'm not a great social media user, and I still value human contact. I still like the idea of being able to people to sit and talk to them and to go down to a bar called Woodworkers, which is not far from uh, where we're sitting, which is. Um, the bar of choice for people to go to after readings at the university or at um, the Belfast Book Festival, which takes place at the Crescent Arts Centre close to here. Um, sit down, talk to people, take every opportunity you can. Go along to things, go and watch things. If there are writers around who are talking about their work or launching books, go and support them. Go and listen to them, see if you can learn anything. Chat to them. If there's opportunity for socialising, take it because it's not the solitary occupation perhaps that um, it's sometimes uh, made out to be being a writer, but there are solitary times in it. And, um, you know, always always take the opportunity to uh, support people uh, and to benefit if you can from their experience. I think those are really great words to, to end the episode on. So thanks again, Glenn, for taking the time to, to chat to me. Thanks today. a million. And um, we didn't even get round to talking about the Good Vibrations stage production, which is um, which was in the Lyric Theatre in 2018, which is being revived uh, in the Lyric Theatre and then in the Abbey Theatre in Dublin and um, possibly onwards from there in uh, 2021. So that's just in Northern Ireland at the moment. Right? Uh, it's going to be, It's uh, the, the stage production comes back to the Lyric Theatre in Belfast in June and runs through until the middle of July. And then it goes to the Abbey Theatre in Dublin for two weeks in August. And uh, and then I'm fairly sure it's going to be in uh, New York in early 2021, which leaves a few months at the tail end of this year where we would like to think it might be somewhere in Britain, London or Edinburgh. That's a whole other podcast about how you adapt a screenplay for a stage production. So maybe some other time. Yeah, a follow-up. Yeah, 22nd <laughs> rewrite. Exactly. It's been great right. talking to you. Thanks a million. Yeah, thank, no, thank you so thank much. You. And that's it for, for this episode. Thanks again for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the show. We've got some really great episodes coming up, so please do make sure that you are subscribed, following us on social media, and do feel free to send in your comments and leave a review on iTunes. We'd really appreciate a positive five-star review on the iTunes page. That's a bit that's lacking right now. So thank you again and see you next time.